Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome, everyone. My name is Ryan Tripp. I'm your host today for New Books in History, a channel on New Books Network. I'm going to be discussing the recent publication by Bloomsbury Academic Press, the book Trauma, Primitivism, and the First World War, The Making of Frank Pruitt by Professor Joy Porter. She is the principal investigator of the Treated Spaces Research Group at the University of Hull. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Porter. Thank you, Ryan. I'm really pleased to be here. So first off, let's talk about this striking cover image um, of your book, as well as the possibility of the book being turned into a cinematic production. Yeah, well, it's got a beautiful cover that I'm so pleased that Bloomsbury put so much effort into creating because it's a painting very lovingly done of Pruitt by Dora Carrington. And uh, she was the, the painter, really, of the Bloomsbury group. And you can tell that she's very attracted to Pruitt and how unbelievably attractive he was as a person and as a physical presence. And she's painted him with deep-set hazel eyes, and there's a slight emptiness and uh, demure wonder about the picture, which I think says a lot about him. And, you know, he, he really was extremely attractive to both sexes, and that really dictated the story of his life. So let's talk a little bit about the possibility of the book being turned into a movie or television studio production or what have you. Oh, yes. Well, um, when the book was first discussed in the UK in The Guardian, there was a lot of kerfuffle of people thinking it would be a wonderful story uh, because, of course, he is very now. He's someone who's suffering mental trauma, which is very now. He's also an imposter. So there's a little bit of the talented Mr. Ripley, I suppose, in it. And then he's someone who charges through the class system, the British class system. So there's a little bit of, I suppose, Brideshead revisited uh, in there as well in his his narrative. And of course, there's the war and shell shock, which has a lot of elements that that, that people are, are we're interested in, remain interested in. I, I have no idea how all these things work, uh, but apparently it's proceeding, so I don't know what it means. But I think Pruitt would find it hilarious that uh, he might he might be the subject of, of contemporary drama over a hundred years after his output ended. He always thought of himself as a man out of time. So that would be uh, quite ironic, I think. <laughs> so let's uh, get to know author Frank Pruitt. 
If possible, can you situate his nostalgia for his maternal grandfather's farm in Ontario in Canada and his 1914 enlistment in the Allied fight against the Central Powers in the context of the British war drive, Canadian autonomy, and the contributions of Indigenous war warriors, to, of course, to World War One? So I'll probably start with the Indigenous thing first. I mean, people don't talk about this enough, but uh, Indigenous people have fought and bought war bonds far disproportionate to their numbers across both of the global conflicts. And Pruitt grew up farm boy in Ontario, middle class, but surrounded by an Indigenous matrix uh, of, of things that were happening from kids escaping from residential schools, to Tom Longboat, the famous marathon runner who was from his, his region, and to poets like Pauline Johnson, who he probably would have encountered also. He grows up in a hellfire and brimstone kind of um, context with a, a grandfather who's, who's preaching doom and, you know, you're born in sin, that, that version of Christianity. And Pruitt rejects that completely, but he is extremely patriotic and signs up in that great rush to support the empire in its time of need. And he writes poets, poems that say that he wants to help Canada take its proper place as a new nation on the world stage. So all of these things feed in to him joining up. At the time, he's at the University of Toronto. When he joins up, um, I think he, from a structural point of view, is fulfilling the needs of Great Britain, you know, the the greatest empire on earth at the time, for boots on the ground. They really need manpower. And that's what they see as Canada's role in this, this fight. And he's quite quickly changed from being a Canadian fighter to being an officer in the British Expeditionary Force. And that was a promotion available to him, probably because of his degree. So he goes through tremendous change very quickly uh, from about 1915. What did Pruitt's notebooks reveal about Georgian poetics, uh, the combat experience, and uh, Wilfred Owens' sheer time that you mentioned in the book, particularly as applied to his being buried alive? Well, he suffers badly and he is thrown from his horse and then he goes and recovers in England for a year and he comes back. And then April 1918, he's buried alive, which is one of the worst things that can happen to any human being. I don't know if you ever saw Kill Bill, but it happens in there. Uh, yes, I have. <laughs> depiction. <laughs> but I mean, in World War I, it was a great fear of a lot of the soldiers because well, Freud described being buried alive as the equivalent psychologically to having all your repression stripped away. You go back into the womb psychologically and rep repression is what allows us to function, repressing all our fears and, and anxieties and desires. So Pruitt is kind of reborn when he claws his way out of being buried by shell fire. And he's psychologically never the same. Wilfred Owen called the really acute suffering that occurs uh, in the First World War period. That's, he, Wilfred Owen's another poet. 
Uh, he called it having a sheer time, and really Pruitt does. I mean, he faces death. When you're buried alive, lungs fill with soil, all your bones and your muscles are crushed. Um, you, often your tongue turns blue. You have to strain every single sinew to claw your way out of the earth. And it's a, a phenomenally uh, disruptive psychological experience. Of course, Pruitt also enjoys combat to some extent. Uh, and he doesn't go through the normal, oh, I suppose, normal or conventional um, trajectory of poets. You know, the, the conventional story is poets begin with the Georgian stylized flowery language and then they end up very much speaking in Wilfred Owen's sheer time type of dialogue. Uh, Pruitt keeps the Georgian poetic commitment to the underdog to democracy. Uh, he keeps some of the flowers, I suppose, but he really does speak to things that aren't conventionally talked about. Like what does it do to you to face overwhelming trauma and fear that you can just, that, that the mind can't really comprehend and especially complex trauma where you're living in fear over time and, and what does that do to the mind? And he puts all of this in his poetry. And this is something that, you know, with, with us becoming more at ease with psychoanalysis and so on, and the idea of the unconscious over the last hundred years, I think it's really, it's time has come for us to, to see Pruitt as having a fundamental contribution to how we understand the First World War as a combat experience. There's additional themes uh, that I'd like you to talk about. Um, if possible, can you discuss haunting by the war dead, uh, sensory triggers for shell shock, and and what you describe as positive effects of enlistment, such as collective identity and uh, disassociative precision? So, as I say, uh, not everything about being in war is negative, and I argue that we overemphasize certain negatives. Uh, there is great strength in being part of a group and acting collaboratively. And, you know, repeatedly when you look at these poems, you see men going back to fight, having been treated for various traumas, physical and mental, and they go back for their, their brigade, for their regiment. So there is real strength and collective identity and it, it, it really is an important um, force uh, and it, I think it's wrong for us to see so many of the First World War poets as somehow pacifist. And I have a whole case for why they aren't pacifists. I think it's kind of ironic that we call uh, soldiers who fight and fight again and fight again and fight again, uh, calling them pacifists just because they accurately describe some of the trauma that, that uh, adhered to fighting. When Pruitt emerges from the soil, having been buried alive and face, having faced death. The conventional understanding that we have of the difference between the living and the dead breaks down for him. He feels permanently haunted, hag-ridden. He sees the dead around him. He believes he's communing with them. They're draped over chairs when he speaks. He's walking down Piccadilly and, and is, is instantly back there because trauma uh, messes with time in that sense time is the first casualty of war really uh, because when you face overwhelming trauma 
your ability to uh, put time in order and keep time in its disciplined lanes is broken down. So he would often be, for many, many years afterwards, triggered instantly, emotionally back to the trenches and to the worst that he'd experienced. And very often his poetry talks about dissociation, where his sense of self is fundamentally disrupted. He talks about himself as being dead or he's he's already he feels he's already dead and this is simply an illusion life or he feels that the dead are with him and that they're they're actually in um, controlling or d- discussing life with him funnily enough Sassoon had a similar thought he he felt that he was a ruminant that history had already happened and he was kind of re-watching it so there's a real theme across a lot of the war poets of time being disrupted so let's talk about uh, context. What exactly was the privileged diagno- diagnosis of shell shock versus contemporary PTSD? Um, in your brief response, um, if you can address you know, ideas on physical versus psychological causes, uh, gender, REM sleep, and, and treatments, that would be excellent. Okay, there's a lot there, but I'll just pick mm-hmm. out what, what for me matters most. So... Um, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, doesn't really map on to shell shock as it was discussed clinically or in cultural terms in the period of the First World War. PTSD diagnosed around 1980 uh, by the American by the Americans, but shell shock almost as soon as the word exists, it is dispensed with by um important psychologists because it was there, there was always this debate between whether there were organic causes for it like, you know it is the brain literally shook by explosions and does does that cause these these tremors and and permanent terror and dilated pupils and um, constant emotional distress or is it something to do with um, the mind itself? So I think there there is a big difference between shell shock and PTSD. I like the word shell shock because it speaks to something fundamental in the culture, I think, and the fact that we still use it. Personally, I don't think PTSD as a term will necessarily survive if we look in 100-year leaps uh, because it's so porous and baggy a term. You have to suffer for two years uh, according to the clinical definition and so on. Uh, I think it's very difficult to talk in very precise terms about this mental um, distress and and injury. I mean, I talk about combat trauma as as probably the most um, useful term. It usually messes with sleep, particularly REM sleep, that's said to help us sort our memories as, as we rest. And one of the things about the shell shock hospitals, they were just full of people who, when they slept, faced the horrors, the ghosts, and all the distress uh, that was attendant with with shell shock at at night is when the the demons came out. And there were various treatments for it, uh, psychotherapy on the more gentle end, and faradism versions of it. Uh, the application of electricity at the more kind of draconian end. 
But as I point out in the book, we're still using um, versions of Faradism to treat prolonged psychological distress. And it's easy to look back on the past and apply contemporary, you know, the one flew over the cuckoo's nest, the negative approach to electricity as a means of, of helping people in profound trauma of the mind. Uh, I hope that answers your question. So enter WHR Rivers. Um, let's talk a little bit about his intimate strategy and his version of psychoanalysis for treating uh, Siegfried Sassoon, which who you already mentioned, and additional traumatized officers um, in Pruitt at the uh, Craig Larkett War Hospital. And if you can uh, connect this strategy to sexual repression, um, uh, Whole, you know, primitivism, obviously, um, and diffusion, diffusionism, that would be also excellent. Okay, there's a lot in that as well. Rivers is interesting to me because he is a very much a primitivist. He's the top psychologist of his day and anthropologist. And really, he's perpetuating a certain sort of moonshine, which argues that in a uh, Primitive peoples, indigenous peoples, are inherently inferior to the more inverted commas advanced races who are, um, you know, the West as we understand it. And this was the orthodoxy of his time. He's also treating a lot of shell shocked officers, and he's also homosexual. He treated Sassoon, and Sassoon and Pruitt are, uh, well, Sassoon's in love with Pruitt uh, around 1918 when. He's being treated by rivers. So unfortunately, I have no evidence that actually Pruitt was treated by rivers. But it was such a wonderful juxtaposition that I devoted a chapter to the two sorts of primitivist fantasy. Pruitt, who becomes convinced he's uh, an indigenous person. He thinks he's Mohawk, Iroquois, um, uh, after he's... Uh, buried alive, and Rivers, who's perpetuating another sort of primitivist narrative to do with innate inferiority in Indigenous people. So I bring them together on the page, uh, which is, uh, you know, if you, if you when you read that chapter, you know, I'm smiling all the way through because it is, it is quite funny. And uh, what's even more funny for me is the, the, the way that Rivers is still revered even in this era of change in how uh, indigenous people are thought of he's still very much at the top of the uh, respect tree when it comes to anthropology he did have tangible uh, achievements and I spell them all out but but really there's there's at heart a, a racism in in his uh, approach and I go into this um, in reasonable depth and discusses homosexual uh, proclivities and also how this affected his science. So on that note, you contend that W.H.R. Rivers casts recalcitrant indigenous children, in quotes, as difficult to control. Um, a lot of, uh, protopathic urges that had been set free from epicritic restraints by conditions of war. How did this idea... Uh, ra racist or otherwise, connect with Rivers's forays into South India and his experiments with Henry Head, particularly that uh, penis experiment that you alluded to. 
Yes. And, well. <laughs> and if you could also uh, just uh, tag on, um, I didn't know that he was a labor MP. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. Well, he dies just before, and H.G. Wells takes over his his role as as labor MP. Really? Um, I didn't know that. Rivers has a kind of uh, creative coming out, I suppose, as a result of the war. And he does a great deal of good. He reaches poets and soldiers like Sassoon and Pruitt. And Sassoon says that Rivers lit fires in the forest of the mind. He helped these traumatized soldiers find places of security and safety on an emotional level using a kind of mild Freudian inflected talking therapy which is greatly to his credit. But underlying all of this is this set of ideas that he had uh, to do with how the body worked and how the mind worked. And he connected the two and he divided uh, both the workings of the body in a neurological sense and uh, the workings of the world in terms of anthropology into protopathic and epicritic phenomena. And uh, the epicritic one is the one associated with higher thinking, which of course he connected with advanced races. And the protopathic one were urges that he saw as savage and sexual and linked to poetry. And, um, you know, it's it's a lot like the the kind of uh, Jekyll and Hyde idea, which is which was the big book of when he was at medical school and he kind of develops it yet further in his science. And he develops it when he goes out uh, to the Torres Straits and does experiments out there, trying to prove things such as uh, he wanted to to understand why indigenous people uh, were less intelligent as a compensation for having to be more alert in terms of their other senses like sight because they hunted. So there's a lot of presuppositions about innate inferiority that Rivers um, Rivers' work involves. He Then there's this kind of repressed homosexual aspect to Rivers which I go into in reasonable depth following on from Jonathan Miller the critic and um, director. He, he did some work on this too. And uh, Rivers spends about five years experimenting on the penis of his dear friend, Henry Head, who treated Virginia Woolf for her psychological issues. And, uh, well, I defy anyone not to find a penis experiment funny. Um, I I think it's worth reading and worth thinking about. They were testing the penis for protopathic and epicritic responses. And uh, unfortunately, you won't be surprised that none of their conclusions particularly are held to be true today. Hmm. Uh, But I think they speak to a dimension of rivers that deserves attention. And, um, you know, he's really someone who's only been the subject of one very laudatory biography by Slobodin. And I think it's time to look again at WHR Rivers and see him in a more nuanced light. He's by no means a bad guy, as it were, uh, but he is a product of his time, and I think it's time to see him with clear eyes in that sense. 
So if you can, let's uh, let's go back to our su- subject here. Please situate Pruitt's uh, stay in Lennel House and his homosexual social circles, as well as that Toronto persona, within playing Indian appropriations of exotic other selves in British mass culture. Um, you know, and then, you know, works by Sassoon, Marsh, and Carpenter. Um, and if you can also address the uh, soldier's dec- declaration, that would be helpful. Okay, well, Sassoon's famous for making a declaration in the British Houses of Parliament that complained about the, not the war itself, but the unnecessary lengthening of the war he felt that it had been kept up for too long and that, that it was not serving British interests for this to happen. And uh, this defined his career really in critical terms. It's, just, it's very much this um, turning point for, for critics, how, how they relate to that. And um, at that time, Sassoon was... or, or did, just after that time is when Sassoon and Pruitt become intimate and close. And they meet at a, a shellshock hospital, Lennel House. And uh, Sassoon, who's extremely rich, uh, one of those people who has, I suppose he's from a family of Rothschild level of, of money, and he doesn't have to work. And he is able to creatively protect various people that he thinks are deserving of, of his help. And young Frank Pruitt, who, who has by this time adopted the identity of Toronto Pruitt, the Indian, is Sassoon's latest protege. And Sassoon writes a poem about him as an Indian, uh, as an as an indigenous person, in fact, not just an indigenous person, but the the quintessence of exoticism and primitivism. He sees him very much as combining all the beauty and authenticity, and you know that whole kind of Johnny Depp uh, quintessence of authenticity narrative. He sees all of that in Prude, and Prude plays up to it. And, uh, you know, if you look at Pruitt as a talented Mr. Ripley type, he becomes an imposter and takes on that identity and retains it really for the rest of his life. Poets such as Robert Graves, they believe him to be indigenous all his, uh, all, all their lives. And when Graves brings out a book of Pruitt's poetry in 1962, after he dies, it, he very much sees his poetic gift as re- connected to, to his, his Iroquois Indian self and that, that's so very true and meaningful and valid. So after 1925, what did correspondence between and works by uh, Robert Graves and Pruitt reveal about their fascination with purportedly timeless indigenous connections to the land, a la an impoverished British peasantry, ghost-ridden war poetry, um, and temporalities. Right. So both Robert Graves and Pruitt are having a rare old time in the early 20s. Robert Graves is 
struggling with money concerns. They're both shell-shocked. Pruitt is suffering really difficult shell-shock, psychological trauma experiences. And they're living, Pruitt's more or less living uh, at, at Garsington, the home of Lady Ottiline Morell, who's another aristocrat that he falls in with. He's not really able to sexually satisfy her, but he falls in with her. And um, Pruitt keeps up this identity as a timeless indigene. And he, in his poetry, connects it to arguments about the creation of a British peasant class and they're being forced off the land through enclosures. He connects it to what's happening at the time uh, as farming industrializes and he eventually ends up working for an institute that brings in combine harvesters for the first time into Britain. He ends up working on uh, experimental farms, trying to solve the world's need for more food. And he's very much tying this set of primitivist ideas about uh, Native Americans or indigenous people to a wider argument about what it means to be driven from the land through industrialization. So he's connecting those those temporalities across time in his work. He writes uh, novels, he writes poems, he writes a play and so forth. And he continues to to get his degree at Christ Church in, in Oxford University. If you can, uh, provide a brief assessment of uh, that stay at uh, Pruitt's stay at Christ Church College at, uh, at Oxford, and then his remove to Garsington Manor at Oxfordshire, um, which was actually in her book referred to as Adeline Philip Morell's theater porch outside of time. Um in your brief assessment, if you can explore the allure of indigenous cultures that we've been talking about um, and the influence of works by Moore. Um, and then you also talk about the blue and gold existence and Marcel Proust's law of inverse proportions. If you can explore that a bit, that'd be great. Right. That's a lot, but I'll pick something. He's at He's living at Garsington, which is this beautiful manor home of Lady Ottiline Morell, who's from one of the richest families in Britain, the Cavendishes. She's talked of by Lytton Strachey as the daughter of a thousand earls. And she's a kind of 60s wild child living in the 20s. She's having sex with as many people as she can, uh, and we think including Herbert Asquith, who's the person who takes Great Britain and Canada into war, the First World War. Uh, She's also got a whole host of some of the greatest minds frequenting Garsington, and she's having on-off relationships with them over time. So um, she has a long affair with Bertrand Russell, for example, uh, other people. She takes Pruitt apparently to a party with Charlie Chapman, Chaplin. She has the painters, Mark Gertler there, Carrington, Dorothy Brett, W.B. Yeats is there, D.H. Lawrence is at Garsington. Pretty much the whole Bloomsbury world, it's a clearinghouse for talent at the time. And Pruitt is resident and he corresponds with, meets, uh, has moments with 
quite a range of these people, which makes the sources for this book uh, a challenge, but also a lot of fun to, to look through. Prude at the time calls the way he's living while he's in this golden world, living in a fabulous manner, a blue and gold existence, because he's church mouse poor, but they're rich. He said they had their toys and they don't understand other people who don't have toys. They're the equivalent, I suppose, of um, a bunch of really talented trust fund kids uh, who also attract a load of great artists and painters and writers and mathematicians and thinkers to play with. And of course, eventually, Pruitt rebels against all of this. and. One of the things I talk about is I compare Ottoline's life to Proust's law of inverse proportion, where he said, you know, there's an inverse proportion by uh, in terms of how much someone purports to care about, say, war or suffering, and um, the distance they are from it. So Ottoline is dancing, uh, wearing beautiful clothes. Uh, having a rare old time of, of really quite debauched fun at the same time as people are dying in this horrendous global conflict. And she's distressed by it, but she's also determined to to party in, in an enormous way. And Pruitt's part of that heady, uh, almost Gatsby-ish set of fun around the pianola and sexual fun that's happening and breaking all the rules at Garsington Manor. Please explain Pruitt's subsequent repatriation to his family's Ontario farm um, and then his renunciation of uh, Canadian consumerism and the psychosexual poetry produced during this period of his life. So poor Pruitt, he's having a ball. He's at Garsington. It's of unsurpassed beauty as a place. You know, I've been there. It's gorgeous. It's like a constable painting. And he's with all these rich, dramatic, interesting people, some of the greatest minds of the 20th century. It's a lovely place to work. You can stroll around the grounds with the yew trees, then you can skinny dip in the pool. Interesting people come with lots of money and commission you to do things. It's just great. And then he's forcibly repatriated back to the boring family farm in Ontario. And boy, does he hate it. He's bored out of his mind. His shell shock symptoms quadruple. He starts drinking like crazy. And he... um. His only solace really is is uh, playing the organ and and others. His music is his is is his um, sanctuary. But really, he drinks and he mostly spends his time despising Canada for its desperate getting and spending everything from just a lack of community. And he feels that Canada, post war, has forgotten the soldiers who fought. And it's forgotten its dream, what it was as a nation. And he's unbelievably annoyed. He's also still a wild child, snuff-taking drinker, an abandoned person in many ways, and very sexually, I suppose you'd call him pansexual, but he's very free in this period. And he writes, 
wonderful poems, really, about being sexually free. Things with titles such as I Shall Take You in Rough Weather and so forth. All very not what we think of when we think of First World War poets. How did that war alienate Edward Thomas and Pruitt from nature and water in prose? And how did Pruitt become alienated from Garsington, which you, you've already kind of briefly mentioned, even ha- even after having a daughter with a deaf friend of Adeline's daughter? Well, it's just as soon as he can, he gets the heck out of Canada and gets back <laughs> to his beloved Oxford and back to being resident in Garsington. Uh, but of course, he's no money, absolutely no money. And he doesn't have a trust fund or any of that. And um, although there's talk about getting some kind of whip round together to uh, get enough money for Prue to fulfill his poetic abilities and his creative abilities, of course, he's been published by Virginia Woolf and he's, he's contributed to Georgian poetry in 1822 and so on. But fundamentally, he just doesn't have that room with a view need. He doesn't have the money to have the room to write. So he ends up having being in charge of chickens and cheese on the Garsington estate and working himself to pieces. Eventually, he cracks. He steals the trousers of Siegfried Sassoon, who probably has many, many pairs, and he steals them deliberately. And finally, he steals from Philip Morel, Ottoline's husband, and flaunts that fact in front of Sassoon and others and is summarily dismissed from the Bloomsbury Olympian uh, world. He then writes about his trauma and his depression in new ways. One of the things that happens is he feels fundamentally alienated from nature. Now, conventionally, um, nature's seen as somewhere that poets go to for sanctuary, for salve, for psychological strength and, and rebirth. But Pruitt writes very meaningfully about himself as a poet being meaningless to the churning nature of poetry, to death and rebirth and those cycles, and being a a tiny infinitesimal cosmic speck in big processes from which he's fundamentally irrelevant. And that's poetically very interesting. And I compare it to aspects of Edward Thomas, the great Welsh poets, uh, writing around this period also and situate Pruitt in relation to Thomas. And I think it's absolutely fascinating um, that Pruitt's so unusual and in many ways prefiguring later poetic shifts. Uh, he's way ahead of his time. Please also elaborate on Pruitt's experimental farm at Tubney, which you again already alluded to, and his thoughts on mechanized food production, altered landscapes, and his belief in cosmic uh, irrelevance. So this is another way he's a way ahead of his time. He's worried about things that we're only now starting to seriously think about, like what what are we doing to the soil? Uh, how are we going to feed ever burgeoning? billions on earth. How many are there going to be in 2050? Uh, it's 10 billion. Uh, Pruitt's thinking about this in, in real, really meaningful ways in the 20s. And he's also thinking about what it means to be alienated from the cycles of production on earth. And what will that do to man's sense of self 
And he makes those connections between industrialized warfare that he's experienced and that asymmetry of warfare on a fundamental level uh, between man as just this fleshly, vulnerable thing and uh, TNT, tanks, uh, shrapnel, etc. It's it's not a fair fight at all. And he connects, because after all the... Uh, the the nitrogen that that they're fixing in order to massively increase food production in the twenties is also what feeds the bombs that he experienced in the First World War. So he's making those connections between chemical changes and changes in how people are relating to the earth itself and to the cycles of production of food that are, I think, really ahead of his time. And absolutely fascinating, and it's not innocent, and it, it's a clear-eyed, unblinking look at what are fundamental problems. That that really, it's only as twenty twenty-first century begins that we're as the planet warms, and incidentally, as the planet rearms again, as it did a hundred years ago. It's only now we're starting to think about these issues in a serious way. How did his dairy ideas at the Institute for Research in Agricultural Economics, as well as his drafting of the 1933 uh, Chesay tragedy, respond to changes in the land wrought by industrial agriculture? And then if you can briefly address his uh, subsequent editorial uh, duties, um, and then his death, and then soft primitivism, the concept of soft primitivism. Okay, I think I've kind of covered the whole thing about about how you know he's he's bringing in mechanized agriculture. Mm-hmm. What he's working at this institute for research uh, at at Oxford University. After that all ends, he ends up doing um, he's very successfully actually being an editor for a kind of country life type magazine, and he brings in a lot of innovations there, right down to. You know, farmer's wife cookbook, it was, and it sells like hotcakes. Uh, but as I say, he's always been a bit of a wild child and a snuff-taking libertine, and basically that gets him fired from various roles uh, that he has as editor. Uh, and then the drinking perpetuates as he fights again in the Second World War, and he goes from job to job. And he dies with a whiskey glass in his hand and the alcohol and the trauma, combat trauma, the shell shock, I think are intimately connected. Overall, the reason why I've told or retold or or unearthed so much about Pruitt is because I'm interested in this big concept I have about how primitivism relates to our perception of time. Because Pruitt is a pretend Indian, he's someone who takes on an Indian identity that is not his own and adopts a culture that corresponds more to how he feels and his values than actually how he was born. And he perpetuates it and uh, arguably benefits through perpetuating it. But I think he speaks to something that's worth us all thinking about. I talk about the difference between soft primitivism and a kind of harder primitivism. 
Self-primitivism is where we cope with the new by harking back to some imagined primitive past. Uh, so if you look on your computer screen, we do it with, say, the little waste paper basket icon that's on our computer screen. There are no baskets and there is no paper, but we still have to keep looking backwards in order to somehow cope with the modern and with the new. And I think Pruitt was trading on that same very human desire for a primitivist past that we can somehow leaven the present with, you know, cope with the shock of the new by bringing some imagined past into the present. Now, I talk about other groups on Earth who do what I call hard primitivism, where they forcefully bring a version of the past into the present. And in this, I would... Uh, from a ideological sense, think of the Nazis who really tried to to bring a version of um, a racist past to bear in the present. So you can you can you can see it in a much harder form. Uh, but Pruitt is what I would call in the a softer form of primitivism. Of course, nowadays we look on people like Pruitt imposters, I suppose, in a much harsher way uh, because of all the discussion of valid discussion of cultural appropriation and so forth. And he was a cultural appropriator. And I put him in the, in the same bracket as Grey Owl and Long Lance and others. But I think it's important to remember that this was an age of self-invention and an age of theater and an age of uh, boundary breaking and prudent breaks a series of them, sexual, class, uh, in terms of poetry and creativity, and also in terms of um, what it meant to be a soldier and what it meant to be a veteran. So I have one final question. Uh, what's going on uh, with you next? Are you currently working on any projects that you can disclose at this time? Well, if you're interested in what I'm doing, uh, we're just relaunching our, our, our website at Treaty Spaces Research Group, which is run out of the University of Hull, for which I am co-principal investigator. Uh, my next book is Canada's Green Challenge, which is all about the, the difficulties Canada faces and the opportunities for dealing with environmental pressures. And I'm really fascinated by that piece. I'm also writing a book on Nixon and the Republican Party and how environmentalism sits within uh, Republican politics and asking the question, what would Nixon do when it comes to the environmental pressures that the United States faces? So that's one of a series of things we're doing. And also look out for Brightening the Covenant Chain, which is a large research grant that I'm leading, where we're looking at the history of diplomacy between the British Crown and the Iroquois uh, Six Nations and their neighbours. So we're um, unearthing that diplomatic past, everything from wampum belts to bowls to you, you name it, as, as well as ideas of diplomacy and treaties. So do visit treatiespaces.com. We will, and I hope you uh, remember the New Books Network for uh, those particular projects. I will do, always. <laughs> so uh, the book is Trauma 
Primitivism and the First World War, The Making of Frank Pruitt, uh, published by Bloomsbury Academic Press. Uh, this has been a production of New Books in History, a channel on New Books Network. On behalf of uh, Professor Joy Porter, this is Ryan Tripp. I've been your host. Please tune in next time. <laughs>